Howdy y'all, welcome to episode number 18 of Once Upon a Time in Texas. <clears throat> I'm your host, producer, editor, head janitor, whatever you want to call me, Michael Mitchell. Um, for those of you that follow the podcast and listen, I just want to give you a big thank you for sitting on the back porch with me in your mind and, uh, you know, listening to me tell stories. I have a lot of fun doing this. And I learn a little bit along the way. So it's always a good time. And uh, this week we're going to talk about outlaws. You know, there's nothing more interesting than outlaws and um, basically just, I don't know, people just obsess over them. I mean, Billy the Kid, um, you know, Butch Cassie and the Sundance Kid, you know, guys like that. Just people just, when you talk myth, lore, and legend of the West... Outlaws are pretty much top on your mind. <clears throat> so in this case, we're going to be talking about outlaws in Texas. Yes, we've had a few of those. Most of them led some uh, pretty serious lives of crime, um, but they've really been romanticized over the years. So keep in mind, folks, these are, these are hardened criminals we're talking about, and most of them appear really to be victims of circumstance. Um you know, that kind of pushed them to their lives of crime. Before I get too terribly far into this, though, uh, I would like to mention that my wife, who's a middle school teacher, and my kids are now off for the summer. <laughs> Finding a quiet time um, to be able to do this podcast has been a little difficult. So you may hear some stuff in the background. I've got the doors shut, but they're in watching, uh, of all things, Kindergarten Cop right now. And uh, they are just laughing their butts off. So if you guys hear some stuff in the background, it's probably them. But uh, it is what it is. So before we jump out there too much, I want to mention the uh, sponsor for the podcast, which is yours truly, uh, me. So I am an independent mortgage loan originator here in the state of Texas. Um, just moved my license to a great company called American Mortgage Company. So... Uh, they have lots of great products, great rates, um, really enjoy working with them so far. So <clears throat> I know there are tons of people moving to and in Texas, and I know that a lot of you guys listen to this podcast do too. So let me help them out. Like I said, I'm an independent mortgage loan originator. Um, I love helping people get into houses. We help people finance their dream homes right here in Texas. Getting a mortgage is not always fun or something you really want to do, but again, most folks just don't have that couple hundred thousand dollars or more laying around to go out and pay cash. So what do you have to do? You have to get a mortgage. And so, you know, if you have to do that, why not at least work with somebody who's a little entertaining and works hard to make that process as painless as possible? Like, you know, me. So if you know someone moving to or in Texas, send them over to me. <clears throat> you can send them to my website at themichaelmitchell.com because I am the Michael Mitchell. So themichaelmitchell.com, let me help them out. And remember, when you work with me, I sell dreams, not mortgages. <laughs> so there you go. There's my uh, cheesy interlude um, for the podcast. So let's go ahead and jump in and get to some outlaws here. <clears throat> So first up is Sam Bass. Now, we've talked about him a little bit in a podcast before, but, you know, just in case that you don't remember, we're going to go ahead and hit it again. So 
Sam Bass, he was born in Indiana around 1851, so way back in the day. And he became one of the most well-known outlaws in the state of Texas in the late 19th century. For those of y'all that don't know, that's the late 1800s. He was a bank and train robber who pretty much terrorized Texas during that time. And he was born in Mitchell, Indiana, which sounds like a fantastic place. I'm not sure. I wish my grandfather was still around. I'm pretty sure he'd tell me that must have been named after one of our ancestors. And I kind of remember him saying something along those lines with Mitchell, Indiana. I don't know. <clears throat> but anyway, with a name like that, it sure sounds like a beautiful place. So uh, he was born, like I said, 1851. He was orphaned right before his 13th birthday and was raised after that by an uncle. Um, not much is said about the uncle, but he leaves home about 19 and he moseys on down to Mississippi where he works for a sawmill for about a year. And then he meandered on over to Texas where he worked for a time, no kidding, for the sheriff of Denton, Texas. <laughs> it, it just doesn't get any more strange than that, I guess. So he tries his hand at being a good, outstanding, upright, law-abiding citizen. And then, uh, I don't know, guess it doesn't go well. So he does that for a little bit. And then he tries to, uh, I guess, decides to try his hand at wrangling cattle, but found that it was really boring. And then he buys a horse and races it. And he lives off the proceeds for several years. So I guess you can make money with horses. Not so much anymore. So after a while, the horse was too old to race, and he partners up with another feller by the name of Joel Collins <clears throat> to do a cattle drive for several ranches in and around San Antonio. And in 1866, they, uh, they drive the cattle to Nebraska. Now, this is where it starts going sideways for old Sam Bass. He ends up taking all the proceeds and squanders them. He loses all the proceeds from this big cattle drive while gambling in Deadwood, South Dakota. So now poor old Sam Bass, he's broke. So he and his buddy Joe Collins tried working as freighters. So, you know, hauling wagon loads of stuff for people, but decided they couldn't make a living at it. So then they decide to form an outlaw gang to rob stagecoaches. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I did the research on this guy, and uh, that's just kind of what it says. Yeah, we decided to be freighters for a while, and then... Uh, yeah, you know what? This sucks. Let's just go rob stagecoaches. So anyway, they have a few hits, um, but nothing really, really big. And they don't really hit it big until they rob a Union Pacific Railroad gold train coming from San Francisco in 1877. They hit it big in Big Springs, Nebraska. And they got about $60,000, which is worth about $1.65 in today's money, and they split it up. Sounds like a good partnership, you know, if you're into that kind of thing. So Sam Bass heads back to Texas, and he wants to start a new gang, and he does. So they did some kind of small-time stagecoaches here and there. And uh, in 1878, there are two stagecoach um, robberies and four train robberies within 25 miles of Dallas that are attributed to him and his gang. So not a lot of money is made off of these robberies, but it got the attention of the Pinkerton National Detective Agency and a special company of Texas Rangers. Now, if there's two guys, not two guys, if there are two groups of people that you do not want on your butt, it would be the Texas Rangers and the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. 
<clears throat> I'm sure you guys have read and heard about them. That's just no good. So it gets their attention, and they decide they have it out for him. So Bass is able to elude him for a while until a member of his gang turns out to be an informant. So the lawman and detectives set up a trap for Sam Bass around Round Rock, where they knew Bass and his gang were going to rob the Williamson County Bank. On July 18, 1878, there was a shootout. Sam Bass is shot by the Texas Rangers, but there was some confusion as to who was who because the Williamson County sheriffs were involved, but they had no idea that the Rangers were in town and Bass gets away because <laughs> everybody's shooting at each other. So the lawmen are shooting at each other. There's the confusion. And during that confusion, Bass slips out of town. So anyway, they, they finally get together a posse. <clears throat> they decide they're going to go find him, and they find him shot in a pasture west of Round Rock. They had ridden past him a few times, and finally he waves and said, Here I am. I'm Sam Bass. I'm the guy you're looking for. <laughs> so he finally just gave up. It's probably hurting, I guess. I, it, doesn't, it didn't say where he was shot either. But I, I, I don't know. I've never been shot, but I assume that it wouldn't feel good. So to this day, there's no known photo of Sam Bass um, because no one could ever confirm whether it was him or not. So that just, that kind of blows me away. So there are photos out there that people claim to be Sam Bass, but nobody that actually knew him would confirm it. And the lawmen didn't photograph him after the shootout. Um, Bass's sister comes to Round Rock to get him a, a proper headstone after he passes away and was shown a wanted per poster with Sam's photo on it. And she said, that's not my brother. No idea who that is. So, yeah, so he dies. They bury him. She comes down to get him a headstone. And she says, nope, that's not my brother. No idea who that is. They're like, hey, th this is the wanted poster of him. She's like, yeah, it's not him. <laughs> So anyway, legend does have it that he buried a stash of gold coins somewhere in Denton County before he was gunned down by these lawmen in this shootout down in Round Rock. The treasure is yet to be found, and every once in a while, someone claims to have stumbled upon another clue that will lead them to the loot that Sam Bass buried. Isn't that interesting? So if you guys are ever down around Denton County and you run across a treasure trove of gold coins just remember you heard it here on once upon a time in texas and you want to share it with your good buddy mike mitchell and that would be much appreciated <laughs> so next on our list comes from the texas state historical association which is a great website they have tons of great information a whole slew of things um, to look at think about all this kind of stuff but I got this information uh, about this next robber, bad guy, whatever, um, from the Texas State Historical Association website. And it's a cat named John Wesley Harden. Now, we've heard a lot about John Wesley Harden. Um, he was the outlaw, obviously. He was the son of James G. and Elizabeth Harden. He was born in Bonham, Texas in May, good old May baby, in 1853. This is the fun part. His father 
was a Methodist preacher. Yeah, I don't know. You talk about a preacher's kid going bad. John Wesley Harden, here you go. His dad was not just a preacher. He was also a circuit rider, school teacher, and a lawyer because, you know, you don't want to settle on just one thing, apparently. So John Wesley Harden's violent career starts in 1867. Now, remember, I just told you he was born in 1853. So 1853 to 1867, we're talking 14 years. And so it starts with a schoolyard squabble where he stabbed another kid. I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't sound, you know, doesn't sound unheard of. I've seen that happen around here, I guess. <clears throat> so at 15 years old in Polk County, Texas, he shot and killed a black man as a result of a chance meeting and an argument. Just a random guy, and he just decides he doesn't like him and shoots him. So then the Reconstruction government at the time is, is looking for him. So he fled to his brother's house, about 25 miles north of Sumter, Texas, where in the fall of 1868, he claims to have killed three Union soldiers who sought to arrest him. And within a year, he killed another soldier at Richard Bottom, Texas. <clears throat> so sounds like the life of crime, you know, pretty much took off for him pretty quick. I mean, God, you think about it, born in 1853. I mean, by the time he was 15, he was claiming to have killed three Union soldiers, um, the black guy, and then another soldier. <clears throat> anyway, it's just crazy. So in 1871, Harvin, uh, Harvin, Hardin went as a cowboy up the Chisholm Trail. Seems like a good thing. Gets out of town for a little bit. But then he kills seven people on the trail. Um, with three of them being, I'm sorry, he kills seven people in route. So while he's on the cattle drive, and then he kills three more in Abilene, Kansas. So that's 10. I mean, could you imagine riding with this guy? So he killed 10 there. He claimed to kill four soldiers and another guy before. So there's 15. Like this is pretty bad dude. So after he kills the three in Abilene, Texas, he allegedly backs down city marshal, Wild Bill Hickok who it says they, while Bill may have dubbed Hardin Little Arkansas, I don't know why. It's noted several times in some of the stuff I looked at. Nothing says why he called him Little Arkansas. So anyway, Hardin decides to get out of town. So he heads down to Gonzales County, Texas, where he got into uh, a little bit of a difficulty with Governor Edmund J. Davis's state police. So, again, that's another one of these things. Like, they mentioned that where he got into difficulty with the governor's state police, but then it doesn't say anything about it. Like, I, did he shoot at him? Was there a fight? Like, I couldn't find anything else about it. It's really frustrating. So, Hardin then decides to settle down a little enough, or a, a, a little bit. So, he settles down long enough to marry a lady named Jane Bowen, and out of that marriage came a son and two daughters. So, apparently, he was a prolific guy. Good for him. So then, that's in 1871. So now we're the ripe old age of, uh, what is that, 17, do, 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 yeah, 17, 18 years old? Yeah. 18 years old, he's married a lady, and they're popping out kids. So Harden adds 
at least four other names to his death list before surrendering to the sheriff of Cherokee County in September of 1872. Now, keep in mind, he's not even 20 years old yet. 19 years old. Apparently, he's got a son and two daughters. I don't know. that. I'm just reading what I could find, and it was verified several places. So he breaks out of jail in October and begins uh, stock raising, which I guess means he was raising some sort of stock. That's just what it says. Um, but he was drawn into the Sutton-Taylor feud in 1873-1874. I apologize. I did not dig into that anymore. But apparently there was a feud between some people named the Suttons and the Taylors. And it happened in 1873 and 1874. So he gets drug into this and he aligns himself with Jim Taylor of the Anti-Reconstruction Forces. And he killed the opposition leader, the guy named Jack Helm, and who was a former state police captain. I'll bet that pissed some people off. <laughs> so in May 1874, keep in mind now he's 21 years old, um, he starts two herds of cattle up the trail. So while visiting in Comanche, presumably Texas, he kills a guy named Charles Webb, who was a deputy sheriff in Brown County. Sounds like a bad deal. So from that time on, Hardin is consistently pursued in Texas. Like, they want him, they decide he's a bad dude. He moves with his wife and children to Florida, and then Alabama. Um, then he adds uh, one certain and five other possible names to his death list before the Texas Rangers, who were pursuing him in Florida, catch him in Pensacola, Florida, on July 23rd, 1877. So he's now the ripe old age of 24 years old. So he was tried at Comanche for the murder of Charles Webb, and he was sentenced. And on September 28th, 1878, he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. So remember, 1878, he's now 25 years old. So during his prison term, um, he made repeated efforts to escape. He read theological books like a good preacher's kid would do, obviously. Um, he was the superintendent of the prison Sunday school. Of course he was. And he studied law. And then he was pardoned on March 16th, 1894 and admitted to the bar. So that's pretty good. So 31 years old now, 1894, he's admitted to the bar. Like things look good. Model prisoner doesn't serve a lot of time in prison. I mean, he still served some time. I mean, obviously that's 16 years. <clears throat> but in 1895, he goes to El Paso to appear for a defense in a murder trial and to establish a law practice. And despite the efforts to lead a decent life, he was soon in trouble again. So uh, he took as a lover the wife of one of his clients, a guy named Martin Moroz, who was a cattle thief who fled to Mexico. When Moroz found out about the, fair, the affair, he crossed the border to confront Hardin under promise of safe passage by lawman George Scarborough, whereupon he was killed by a number of law officials. So Hardin was rumored to have hired the officers to assassinate him. Makes sense, right? He's, he's got the guy's wife as the lover. The guy's mad about it. He comes back from Mexico. He's promised safe passage. Boom, he gets killed. <clears throat> Why not? Sounds like something Hardin would do. So Hardin was rumored to have hired the officers to assassinate him. Sounds like a deal. 
And in August 1895, Constable uh, John Selman, one of the officers involved in Moroz's killing, shoots Harden in the Acme Saloon. Um, it says they they may have argued because he was not paid for the murder of Moroz. Don't know. But Harden dies instantly and is buried in the Concordia Cemetery in El Paso. So, wow, what a life. 1853, I think. Yeah, 1853 to 1895. So, made it to the ripe old age of 42. <clears throat> So John Wesley Harden killed a whole bunch of people. Wow. However, his autobiography was completed to the beginning of his law studies in prison. Um, so basically it was his autobiography to right before he completes, you know, or I guess right before he starts law studies in prison. And it was the subject of some litigation, but it was finally published in 1896. <clears throat> Harden was an unusual type of killer. It says that he was a handsome, gentlemanly man who considered himself a pillar of society, and he always maintained that he never killed anyone who did not need killing, and that he always shot to save his own life. That, you know, that sounds very noble. So many people who knew him um, and his family regarded him as a man more sinned against than sinning. Yeah, so basically the world drove him to do this. The fact that he had more than 30 notches in his gun, however, is evidence that no more dangerous gunman ever operated in Texas. John Wesley Harden was a bad dude, to say the least. So, hang on just a moment here. Sorry, we had some storms blow in the other day, and I've got a little bit of allergies kicking up, so I try not to clear my throat, but it's it's tough. <clears throat> so let's jump to number three here. So next on our list is kind of interesting because he wasn't born in Texas. He just kind of hung out here a lot. I guess a lot of folks, you know, weren't born in Texas, but he hung out here. But <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and give you some background on this guy and uh, I'll, I'll kind of wrap it up and show you. And it's a guy by the name of Butch Cassidy. And I had no idea he was actually born Leroy Parker in April of 1866, but he was better known as Butch Cassidy. He was an American train and bank robber and the leader of a gang of criminal outlaws known as, anybody? That's right, the Wild Bunch. That's what, that's what me and my friends should have been called when we were in high school. <clears throat> we didn't run around robbing trains or banks, though. So he was the first of 13 children from English immigrants, Maximilian and Ann Parker, his parents had converted to the Mormon faith. This is what I find interesting. When I worked for the Boy Scouts, I got to know a lot about Mormonism because Scouts used to be their, uh, their priesthood program for their young men. <clears throat> so um, his parents convert to the Mormon faith while they're in England, and Max, his dad, and then uh, Max, let's see, Robert, Butch's father, arrive in Salt Lake City, Utah in about 1856 when he was 12 years old, and they are considered to be Mormon pioneers of the area. So I thought that was kind of neat. So Parker, Butch Cassidy, uh, flees his home as a teenager, and while he's working on a dairy ranch, he met a cattle thief by the name of Mike Cassidy. 
He ended up working on several other ranches. In, a, in addition, he did a brief apprenticeship with a butcher in Rock Springs, Wyoming, where he got his nickname, you know, Butch, um, which he soon added the last name Cassidy in honor of his old friend and mentor. And so the name Butch Cassidy is born. So Parker, Butch Cassidy, engages in criminal activity far more than a decade at the end of the 19th century and clear into the early 20th century. But the pressures of being pursued by law enforcement, notably, again, the Pinkerton Detective Agency, forces him to flee the country. So he flees with an accomplice of his, Harry Longabaugh, known as the Sundance Kid. Yep, so Butch Cassidy and now the Sundance Kid. And the Sundance Kids, so Longabaugh's girlfriend, at a place. So the trio first end up in Argentina, and then they go to Bolivia, where Parker, Butch Cassidy, and Longabaugh, Sundance Kid, are believed to have been killed in a shootout with the Bolivian army in November 1908. But the exact circumstances of their fate still really end up being disputed. So I think that's kind of cool, too. So I'm sure you guys are thinking, how is this all related to Texas, Mike? You just talked a whole bunch about all these areas up there, um, you know, in the Northwest. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. And then also South America. Most of his mayhem happens in Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, Idaho. I mean, this guy had a colorful life, to say the least. <clears throat> well, there are a couple of reasons that I lump him in with the uh, Texas outlaws, the Texas bad guys. Number one, after forming the Wild Bunch gang, the Wild Bunch would typically separate following a robbery and uh, fled in different directions. Makes them harder to catch. They would later reunite at a predetermined location, such as the Hole in the Wall, the Robber's Roost, and Fanny Porter's Brothel in San Antonio. So I'm assuming those other places are bars. So we spent a lot of time in Texas. In December 1900, Butch Cassidy posed alongside with several others in the Wild Bunch, which included the Sundance Kid, uh, a guy named Logan Carver and uh, Ben Kilpatrick. They posed for this now famous picture in Fort Worth, Texas, and they call it the Fort Worth Five. And so if you look it up, it's these famous, um, not hole in the wall gang. It's a uh, Oh my gosh, I just drew a blank. Jeez, the Wild Bunch. So they pose for this photograph. But here's the fun part. The Pinkerton Agency actually gets a copy of the photograph, and that's what they use for the wanted posters. <laughs> so yeah, and it's funny because it's a famous photograph, and it's still circulated like widely today. I guarantee you've seen the Fort Worth Five. Google it, look it up, and you'll be like, oh yeah, I've seen that a lot. So... Of course, you know, the 1950s and 60s brought around the Westerns and everything. So Parker, Butch Cassidy's life is, and, and death have really been, really been dramatized in film and television, literature. And he remains one of the most well-known icons of the Wild West, you know, mythos in modern times. And of course, he spent some time here in Texas. <clears throat> So, you know what? We got a few minutes left here. Let's go ahead and do one more. So finally, we have Bonnie and Clyde. Of course, everybody knows about Bonnie and Clyde. So Bonnie's born in 1910. Clyde's born in 1909. And they became infamous for their bank robberies and murders throughout the Midwest and Southern United States during the Great Depression. 
So a lot of folks don't know it, but Bonnie was really a skilled writer and poet, um, while Clyde was really a seasoned criminal who already spent time in prison before he even met Bonnie. And together they formed their gang, Bonnie and Clyde, <clears throat> and they were responsible for, of course, a string of high-profile robberies before they were eventually gunned down um, by law enforcement in Louisiana in 1934. Again, that's famous, and we're going to talk about kind of why. So we all know about Bonnie and Clyde. They're crime spree, but I, I think it's important to note that Bonnie was born in Rowena, Texas, and she worked as a waitress in Dallas before her life of crime with Clyde Barrow. So Clyde is born in Ellis County, Texas, which is southwest of Dallas. So Waxahachie is the, uh, is the county seat now. Um, he grew up very poor. They lived on the west side of Dallas. It says that uh, his family lived under a wagon um, before they could afford a tent. They lived under their wagon for like six months. And so anyway, and this cracks me up. Here's his first two arrests. His first arrest was for not returning a rental car. Apparently he kept it a little long. Police caught him. He's arrested. And his second, and this I'll bet's what really drove him to the, the deep, dark criminal side. He was arrested for being in possession of stolen turkeys. That's right. Apparently turkeys is where it all went downhill for Clyde Barrow. So once he got sent to prison is where things really went awry for him. Um, <clears throat> and we know a lot of the rest of the story from there. Apparently he was sexually abused and kind of got the crap beat out of him in prison. Sounds like a terrible deal. Um, and really, a lot of people say, you know what? He, he really probably was... Uh, was just angry. He was trying to get back at the system. I've read several things where he was just trying to get back at the system. So Bonnie Parker is buried in uh, Crown Hill Cemetery. She was buried in one cemetery and then moved, but both of them were in Dallas. Um, Clyde is buried in Western Heights Cemetery, also in Dallas. They wish to be buried together, and Bonnie Parker's family said no. And so they've never been buried together. So one of the most interesting things I found out is that Bonnie and Clyde had purchased uh, <laughs> life insurance from the American National Insurance Company in Galveston, Texas. That kind of cracked me up a little bit because, I mean, some of y'all know how hard insurance, you know, insurance companies can be to deal with. Anyway, the insurance company did pay out on the life insurance policies. They paid it out in full but since then, they have changed the policy of payouts to exclude payouts in cases of deaths caused by any criminal act by the insured. <laughs> I'll bet they did because Bonnie and Clyde were, you know, criminal celebrities of the day, I guess. <clears throat> the other thing I found out is that shortly after their death in 1934, federal statutes made bank robbery and kidnapping federal crimes. So the FBI was getting way better at coordinating with local law enforcement. And another thing that's noted a lot is this is when two-way radios really started to hit the market and uh, could be mounted in police cars. So it made it a, a lot more difficult to carry out robberies. And that, that really kind of blew me away because it's, you know, 1934, you know, yeah, radios are kind of starting to get big. 
And uh, I remember being told as a kid, you know, never run from the cops. It was kind of a joke, but never run from the cops because you might be able to outrun the car, but you'll never outrun that radio. And I don't know, if you ever see a picture of me, you'll see that I'm I'm not outrunning really anybody <laughs> most of the time. So matter of fact, though, and this is another interesting thing that came out of this. So, of course, so we have the two-way radios. We've got the FBI that's getting more coordinated. There's tons of photographs, um, you know, where their ambush was. So that's another big thing. You know, photography ended up, uh, it was a lot more readily available. And so lots of uh, police and sheriff's offices had access to this stuff. So, but the interesting thing is, I mean, this was kind of a a dying breed, a change in the times, because several other well-known criminals met their fate shortly after Bonnie and Clyde. And and I mean, really shortly. Um, So guys like uh, John Dillinger, he was killed in Chicago two months after Bonnie and Clyde. Pretty Boy Floyd dies in Ohio just three months after, and then four months after, Babyface Nelson is killed in Illinois. So, really, I mean, you know, Bonnie and Clyde were kind of the end of an era, if you think about it. I think that's why they're kind of romanticized and dramatized, too, because, I mean, yeah, there's still bank robberies and kidnappings and stuff that happen, but nothing quite like Bonnie and Clyde. And really, it's because they they were... kind of the end of an era really you know being able to rob gas stations and stuff and get away with it you know they couldn't outrun the radio i guess so there you have it we're a little over 30 minutes uh several of the most notorious outlaws ever to roam the state of texas from sam bass to good old bonnie and clyde these criminals left really a lasting mark on the history of the Wild West. And, and most of these are, I mean, we had a couple from the 1800s and a couple from the early 1900s. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. So I want to thank everybody for tuning in. I want to thank my sponsor, of course, myself and uh, an American Mortgage Company. So keep in mind, if you know someone moving to or in Texas, send them my way. Send them over to themichaelmitchell.com. And remember, I sell dreams, not mortgages. I love helping people get into homes. I really do appreciate you guys sticking in and listening. And as always, remember, the stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas. Y'all have a great week.